This episode of The Explainer is supported by daft.ie. Are you buying or selling a home? If it's for sale, it's on daft.ie, Ireland's number one property website. Welcome to the journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Laura Byrne, and this week, what can be done to stop damaging flooding in Ireland? Now, Storm Babette recently left her mark with the south and southeast of the country bearing the brunt of the high winds and rain. Parts of Cork, in particular, suffered extreme flooding, with streets in some towns under feet of water, leaving homes and businesses devastated and facing a mammoth clean-up. Middleton, in particular, was badly hit. Extensive flooding there meant cars, roads and a hundred buildings in total in the town were submerged. Local residents there were understandably upset when Taoiseach Leo Varadkar visited last week. They say they want a planned flooding relief scheme prioritised, something that's been caught up in the planning process until now. Middleton isn't alone here. Climate change means river and coastal flooding is now more likely to occur and made worse by just how much humans have changed how land is used. So as the threat grows, what can be done to make sure Irish towns are better able to cope with and avoid these damaging events? Are flood relief schemes the only answer here? Or should we be looking at changing our planning system and working instead with nature to mitigate against these events? To look at this today, I'm joined by an expert in flood risk management, Associate Professor of Geography, Dr Mary Burke of Trinity College Dublin. Mary, you're very welcome and thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Laura. So Mary, floods, of course, are nothing new to Ireland. We get a lot of rain, as we know here. So historically, how were they managed? Well, if you want to go far enough back historically, they would have just built their homes on higher ground because they would have known that it seasonally or interannually might get a little bit wet. And then we entered, entered into the age of, I suppose, the Industrial Revolution and engineering came to the fore and we decided as humans that um, the earth, nature was there to serve us. And so sometimes it misbehaved a wee bit and we needed to uh, straighten it out literally and figuratively. Um, and so we have adjusted our rivers to the point where they're not natural anymore in Ireland. And can you then explain how human this human intervention has removed nature's own ability to mitigate against flooding? It's a common theme, isn't it? We've tried to take control of nature and now we're paying the price. I'd first like to say flooding is normal. That's what rivers do. That's what they're supposed to do. That's why the most fertile agricultural land is located beside a river. It's because the river floods and, and deposits its nutrients across flood plains. So without that, you wouldn't have the recharge of the aquifer and you wouldn't have the fertile land. So I'm not sure we want to stop floods. But what we want to do is stop the dreadful effects of some of them on basically people who, who have inherited a landscape from previous um, attempts to manage it. What I think is important to note is that I would call for a complete change in the way we view our rivers. Um, and it's nothing new, but it is something that the EPA has been advocating for a very long time. So at the moment, you can just visualise we have county boundaries, we've county council boundaries, we've got districts, etc. They're all managed and micromanaged at very different levels. And so you can have a very proactive, very positive group in one part of a, of a river and no activity at all in another. So the very first thing I advocate is that we need to remove these local governance structures and maps from dealing with floods. We need to look at the entire catchment from the very tippy top of the mountain down to the, where it comes out into the ocean. 
And so a lot of the times where we have floods, it's actually the river going back to where it was before we try to pin it in between these rock walls or levee systems. And the changes that made these things worsen, is it just down to building on floodplains and reclaiming land, that kind of thing? Yeah, and this has been recognised across the world, actually. And there are some uh, jurisdictions that have got a grip on it because of some massive disasters. So a lot of the planning that we have now in these other jurisdictions is reactive, but now it's being maintained sensibly. So what would have happened would be that they would have seen that there was a kind of a, a recurrence interval, how often a certain flood might have the probability of happening. Um quite frequently, maybe a so-called one in 20 year flood or one in 100 year flood. And they have jurisdictions where basically they say, you're not allowed to do that stuff in this zone. And if you choose to build a house in this zone, we can provide insurance. And if you do choose to have a home or a GAA pitch or whatever in this zone, you're going to have to adjust it somehow to protect yourselves from these floods which are going to occur um, and we can't protect you from. So typical typical kind of household architectural elements would be houses raised up so that the floodwaters happen underneath, or you would have a basement and that would be sacrificed and or it would be made floodproof. Um, so it's just this idea that it's kind of like living with floods. But at the moment, we've built a lot of our homes and continue to build our homes and give planning permission to build our homes on floodplains. And anyone who's interacted with the planning system in Ireland would know that the idea of building a house on stilts is so far down the line. We would, we don't, there isn't much leeway in our planning system for something new like that, is there? Oh, well, I think we need to get it in. I think this is an actual emergency in terms of protecting people. You know, at the moment we have a housing crisis and we're really racing to build houses, but we're trying to build them to a certain A rating or B2 rating that will reduce our energy consumption. It's also very siloed vision and thinking, because it's not just heating our homes, it's cooling our homes. We're going to have more heat waves. It's making our homes more flood resilient. Again, it can be done as the houses are, the homes are being built. So I think we just need to press pause in our whole approach to how individual homes and businesses might be affected and protected by floods and how we manage the system in terms of that whole of catchment approach. And should our local authorities then, Mary, and planning experts in particular, be thinking about flooding in the long term when they're looking at how an area is planned out? I mean, we really need to think about it rather than being shocked by it when it happens. So what we're finding is um, there's this rhetoric. um, Every time there's a flood in the news, they interview people who will say, we never experienced floods like this before. It's this is different, that something has changed. And what has changed, you know, when I think about it, climate change is definitely going to affect things. But even without climate change, we would be getting more floods because we have uh, destroyed the catchment's ability to manage itself uh, for its own equilibrium. If we think about the fact that we've right up at the top, we've drained our bogs. So instead of having this highly absorptive, um, soil, we now have channels that just high velocity, uh, massive amounts of carbon coming down into our river systems. So there's a lot we can do there in terms of encouraging the restoration of peatlands, and that will uh, reduce some of the flashiness of some of these floods. And the flashiness means that they seem to happen really quickly, stop quickly, and are very high in velocity and, and volume when they hit you. 
So Mary, there are two things clearly happening here. On a micro level, we've interfered with our own local ecosystem and that has to be addressed, as you say. And then on the macro level, we have the reality that is climate change. What are the changes in the frequency and the intensity of flooding that climate change is now bringing? So we're looking, the climate change models are predicting, and actually we can see it already, uh, that we're going to get, when when we do get our thunderstorms in Ireland, they're going to be, they're going to carry a lot more water in them. They're going to be a lot more intense and powerful. And that's because our atmosphere is warming and warm, warm air holds more, more moisture. If we look at the reports this year from uh, off the coast of the United States in the Gulf, we can see that there was lots of reports of marine heat waves. That's the birthplace of all of our big systems that come across and hit us in Ireland. They move up the east coast of America as these hurricanes and then take off towards us across the Atlantic. And sometimes they hit us and sometimes they dissipate. And we rarely get a hurricane, but we would get a powerful depression. So I anticipate this winter in particular, we're probably going to see a lot more of these ferocious systems because the nest that manufactures them is actually got a lot of energy in it. And it's um, going to produce a lot more of these systems that will come towards us. And Mary, can you explain then the type of flood schemes that we have traditionally used in Ireland? How effective are they and what are the most common methods? Well, today in Ireland, it's almost exclusively just hard engineering. Um, And this is where the approach is, I suppose, philosophically, is get rid of the water as quick as you can. And you do that by increasing the size of the channel, either by making it deeper, wider or higher on the banks, building walls. And just to clarify, Mary, by channel, you mean the actual river itself, is it the body of water? Yeah. The, the, so the, the the banks of the river down and, and the bed of the river, these are all, this is what we would call the channel. It's uh, the river pathway. And it kind of works under certain situations. And that's why there's always seems to be this call for dredge our rivers and build our walls. But referring back to this catchment ideal, all you're doing is pushing the problem down to your neighbour. Downstream, you're increasing his or her flood frequency and the disastrous consequences of that by putting in these fast evacuation methodologies up um, further upstream. Now, so there needs to be some kind of balance. There needs to be this whole systems thinking. And to be perfectly honest with you, I think there is a limit on how much our OPW, Office of Public Works, can actually do. They have a a fixed budget. They are engineers. They model and they know um, which are the places that have the most value and are at most risk based on population, and they will focus their energies on that. They're actually mandated to do it by the Floods Directive. Everyone else in Ireland is left to their own devices. And this is where the power of nature-based solutions can come in and where people also can feel that they have some control over their own destiny when it comes to flooding of their front uh, room. It sounds almost like fighting a fire with more fire, doesn't it? With just bringing engineer based uh, thinking into it. We did have a piece by John Gibbons this week where he outlined schemes in the UK and a town called Pickering in particular, where rather than spending tens of millions on these flood barriers that you outlined there, they employed nature to do the work. And it has been a huge success. It has. And it's been taken up um, by the government and funding schemes are now available for communities can apply for funding to to. Um, build similar structures in their rivers to protect them. And it has been shown in several occasions, several locations that it works. We you'll have one little village who did these nature-based solutions and villages either side. And you know that the one that wasn't hit so bad by the flood was the one with the nature-based solutions. So we're no longer in any doubt about the efficacy of these. What is under question is how effective they'll be in the really big floods, in the really big catchment 
like down in the Lee in Cork or even the Liffey in Dublin. So, so there are people who will say, look, you just treat every river like a small catchment and then they'll all join up and they'll be effective. Now, we have yet to see whether that is, but I do know that there's a catchment that's about 60 square kilometres, which is quite a lot of area. And these nature-based solutions are the only flood mitigation, um, adaptation, I should say, uh, measures, and they work. And that's been published science peer review paper. Daft.ie is the preferred site for anyone buying or selling a home in Ireland. Whether you're taking the first steps or planning your next move, make sure you're on daft.ie, the best place to buy or sell your home in Ireland. And I think the idea, Mary, of these nature-based solutions is somewhat new to a lot of the listeners. So what could they expect to see if this was employed? What's interesting is that I've brought people out. We have two demonstration sites. We've built one in Wexford and Cork. And they can't see them. They're so (laughs) blended in with nature, which is just fantastic. And so the kind of things we're trying to do is um, small scale, relatively cheap, um, using natural materials. So we have these things called leaky dams. And you're thinking... Leaky dam, oxymoron. Well, the whole point is that you're you're building a, a block, and that can be you can throw a tree across a, a small channel, or you can throw some cut up logs into the channel and pin them down with some rebar or something. And the the water flowing down will basically slow down because it's hit a little obstacle, and that kind of disturbs it and gets in its way, and it might slow it down by twenty seconds. And then if you have a, a quite a steep channel and you put in 20 of them, 25 of them within 100 metres or 50 metres of each other and multiply that by the lag, now we're looking at a significant delay in the time that that river flood peak reaches the main branch of the river. So it's all about slowing down the flow. Another structure, um, the UK name for it is a bund, a B-U-N-D, but basically it's just a an earthen rampart it's a it's a ridge of soil um and we they have to be carefully placed you have to know the lie of the land you have to talk to the farmer to figure out where does the water normally go and um you can build these and so you build them so they're like a dam but then you put in um a 50 mil pipe at the bottom of it so you end up with this huge almost lake-like structure uh on on the farmer's field which terrifies farmers when but I need them to listen to the second half of the message, which is that is gone within six to 12 hours. It's just slowing the evacuation of that flood water out of that field. And I've been to the site, particularly in Wexford, and I've walked down to the um, field. And that this was in, in spring, not in winter. And it was dry underfoot the very next day, the very next day. So um, that's just two examples, further examples of what we might do. I mean, if we look at farming practices, there's a real problem with compaction across Europe. Agricultural soils tend to, um, in, I think it's in 60% of farms across Europe, it's not just an Irish problem, um, have uh, soil compaction due to the movement of heavy uh, machinery and animals in, in wetter times and stuff. And there are some pretty easy ways that you can uh, in, uh, increase the porosity of your soil. It's good for your crops. It's good for your drainage. And that is shown to be quite effective in keeping the moisture in the soil rather than letting it run off to the surface, bringing with it the nitrogen, phosphorus and all those other problems that we have um, in our rivers. And that brings me to a really important point. Just as I was saying that um, we need to build these houses to be flood-proofed and heat-proofed, these measures, these nature-based solutions are not just for floods. They're for biodiversity. 
Therefore, water quality, they have multi-functions. And it's absolutely wonderful that we have something like this, that basically a farmer who please give the farmer a grant to do this, to provide a service to protect the village downstream uh, from flooding. But the other engineering solutions will be needed for our bigger towns. It's too late. And what other measures might people expect to see then? Would this maybe include planting more trees in upland areas or replanting more trees in areas where they've been removed, that kind of thing? So planting more trees is advocated um, to be quite effective. But it's so we have to stop kind of like dreaming about this as being the perfect solution because it's not. There's a lot of literature out there that kind of pulls into question afforesting our slopes. Now, that's not to say that it's a bad idea. What it is is, that when you first plant your slopes and they are saplings and they're growing, that's when you'll get maximum bang for your buck in terms of reducing flows because you're making your soils more organic rich and and porous so the rain has somewhere to go. But if we want to, and we should, plant with native species, they are deciduous. And we're also a zone of winter rainfall. Trees will lose their leaves in winter and so that interception function of the leaves will be massively reduced during the time when they're needed the most. So I I would advocate it absolutely because it will have an effect, but the magnitude of that effect will be somewhat reduced through time. And is there any example in Europe in particular that we can learn really quickly from? You know, if we are a little bit behind the curve, we should be able to learn from our European counterparts. Yeah, we are. Absolutely. And maybe that's because we have a milder climate. And, you know, if you live in an alpine catchment, you're well used to, you know, catastrophic like almost debris flows coming down with big rocks kind of rolling through your village and smashing homes. But at the time has now come. We actually are on the frontier of the Atlantic. So we're going to get hit first with all these systems if they tend to have a pathway over over us. Um, so we absolutely can be doing more because whatever it is, 75% of our land is agricultural. That's a huge potential for us to do uh, the right thing in those lands. But also your own home, you can do a lot. Let's pretend there was a flood in a town in Ireland that had never had a flood before. When we want to start building car parks and um, new roads, etc., they're highly impermeable and it's just creating basically like an impermeable layer that the water has nowhere to go except run off to the river very, very quickly. There is such a thing as permeable pavement, you know, where it sinks in. It still has to be managed because it's sinking into a conduit underneath. Um, we can have green roofs in huge areas of our cities. That basically is shown to absorb a lot of the rainfall and hold it on the roofs. And we're talking here about large scale public works, be it natural or hard engineering, Mary. But should we start thinking then on an individual level, what help could people get to protect their own homes, let's say? So, again, across Europe, they have these doors, waterproof doors. You get installed two kind of ridges of, of, I suppose, metal tracks down each side of your front door. And you have this lightweight um, uh, hat with a handle on it. And you bring it up and you stick it down and you put it in firmly. And you can have water up to nearly the tippy top of that. And you're standing behind it dry as a bone. And they are in the order of 250 euro. So absolutely out of the reach of some people. And government will need to step in and help them. But maybe not out of the reach of other people. So I want people to start thinking about, well, what can I do? You know, you feel so helpless. You feel like it's unless they come in and fix and they rescue and they, 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 uh-uh, no one is coming to rescue us. We have to be independent and rescue ourselves. 
So what do you think is holding us back then, Mary, from actually taking control of this and really implementing the measures beyond what we already have in place that will work? So I think the scientific proof of the efficacy of these nature-based solutions in flood mitigation has been absolutely proven. Where the battle is, is in the socio framework. So we're having um, miscommunication, we're having a misunderstanding, we're having, um, I mean, look at the farmers in Ireland, they feel completely um, defensive when they shouldn't. They, they should feel completely proud that they are the people we've identified that can actually really contribute to helping us manage this problem. Um, so everybody has to change. It's not just the farmers. We have to change in how we um, look at managing our own our own properties. But also the UK has a fantastic weather warning system. It, they send it out on Twitter and it's all local scale. So if there is a role for the local community, the local county councils, etc., it's setting up instrumentation so they can give people warning. The river's up here now and we know in the past when it's up here, it's likely going to go into your home. And again, there are lots of cheap and affordable instruments. All scientific instruments are no longer costing 40,000. They're costing 100 euro and they take two AA batteries. And so communities can absolutely um, buy them and use them. So they, they, you basically put them somewhere where they won't get destroyed over a bridge or uh, in a tree away from the cows or whatever. And they have an acoustic um, function and they'll tell you how high the river is and you can have it happening and it can be live on a website and then people have you know warning you know like so it's about you know give us access to the information so we can make decisions to prevent damage to our homes because we know you're going to be busy with the hospital and the car crashes and the the cars that drive into the rivers. Mary, if you look at flooding overall, can it ever be completely stopped? I mean, I, I guess the answer is we've already said it's going, it's not going to get any easier. Absolutely not. And get that out of everybody's head. It's a natural process. Will the wind ever stop blowing? It's in the scheme of things. Like, no. So, and I think there's been a lack of kind of understanding or education about the nature of floods and what happens when rain falls on land. And, and for us who teach geography at university, and seeing what's happening in the primary and secondary school systems, we're terrified that those students are going to lose that geographical knowledge, which is essential to carry us through this next phase of dealing with climate change. So what type of changes then are we going to see in the coming decades in real terms? We have flood events becoming more common. They may start appearing in places that, let's say, as you mentioned, previously didn't experience flooding. And those areas may have little or no defence. So so if if... The flows and rivers are larger. Yes, you might have them appearing in places where there's no living memory of them having been before. But if you get a geomorphologist out there, she'll tell you that that's actually where the river used to flow, right? Where you will get a lot more floods happening is is in the the housing estates and the towns and villages because of all of the impermeable surfaces that are there. So they will that, that would be called pluvial flooding. So it's not coming in from the coast. It's not coming out of the river. It's just water is running down so many streets at the same time that it's all ending up uh, in the, the dip in the housing estate or in the town. Mary, yeah, I've heard several people in the last few years saying, oh, I wouldn't buy a house there because that used to be a floodplain, you know, and people sharing UN maps and predictive flooding maps along the way. And should we really be considering this kind of thing if we're looking to buy or build a home now in Ireland? Yeah, absolutely. Um, people who want the coastal view are particularly vulnerable on the east coast of Ireland. 
And even on the west coast of Ireland, even though a lot of it is rocky, it's still subject to these huge storms that come in from the Atlantic. So my advice is do not buy a property on a floodplain and do not expect when you do buy the property that somebody's going to come and fix that decision for you. Um, and do not buy within 100 metres of a coastline. What are the predictions then, Mary, around coastal flooding and climate change? I have heard some scientists saying that an accelerated melt in West Antarctica could put oceans up by five metres, which is just hard to even imagine. Well, it depends. If, if we hit four degrees, the sea level will come up a metre um, around the coast of Ireland. But even like where you are, that could be more or less depending on the configuration of your coastline. So if you're talking about coastal flooding, You've also got areas like Cork that are sinking, just like the Netherlands is sinking, naturally in geological terms because there's compaction going on and and collapse very, very gently, but it is sinking. So I I do think we need to start having this mentality of what's known in the business as managed retreat. And this is where we can't protect everyone everywhere. We have to resettle people away from the coastline and away from all the different kinds of hazards. But I do think you, you started out by asking about the information, how do you know? And it's it's not appropriate, I don't think. I don't think that people really know where they're they're buying because they don't have the background. And, and you know, it's unfair to expect them to. The OPW will say that they have a one in 100 year flood, you know, lines and stuff. And to go to the website and to, you know, find out for yourself and everything, I'm thinking, that's a big ask. So I would like to see an initiative at the local government level that would basically take an advisory role to each and every house. And I would like to see the programme was just launched uh, by the government, Be Winter Ready. And again, it's like, well, we're, it's going to get cold. If there's frost, do this, do that, get unplug your electricals. I'm thinking you could do so much better in, in armouring us with the information. We are such a highly educated and a kind of a self-determined people. Just give us the information, the right information, and we'll get on with it. Mary, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time today on all of this. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Laura. This episode of The Explainer was supported by daft.ie. With the largest number of properties for sale in Ireland and being the number one preferred site among buyers and sellers, daft.ie is the best place to buy or sell your home. Thanks again to Dr. Mary Burke for joining us today. You've been listening to the Explainer podcast by thejournal.ie. This episode was brought to you by senior producer Nikki Ryan and executive producer Sinead O'Carroll. If you'd like to support all the work we do here, head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to make a one-off donation or become a monthly subscriber. And of course, you can always leave a review and a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.